Good morning. Anybody a Cleveland Browns fan or from Cleveland? Anybody would admit to that? Anybody? Well, thank you. Who's, who's doing that? Oh, Tom is. Is that it, Tom? There's nobody else in the room? Okay, over here. All right, I, I, want, I want you all to notice these people. These are the people that you want praying for you after this service is over. You do understand why, right? Right? I mean, that most miserable team in football all of a sudden is the most exciting team to watch. So if you like, you have something you need in life, these are the people that you want to go to and say, could you please pray for me? You know, I need like a million bucks or something. I need my whole world to turn around. Those, those are the people. Anyway, uh, this is us. Uh, so welcome those at uh, West Falls Church watching, those of you in the room, those watching on Grace Live. We really appreciate you being here. We uh, are talking about this uh, series, using it as a backdrop for some just illustrations and examples. But Romans chapter 12 is where, where we are really based out of in this whole thing. And and we're going to learn from what Romans 12 has to, uh, has to tell us. The show, if you're not familiar with it, it uh, it's quite a show. It's an award-winning winning show, Golden Globes, Emmys. It's just won all kinds of stuff So and watched by tons and tons of people. It's, it's, it's fascinating. We'll talk about some clips that I sent uh, earlier this week, and I hope that Hope you're taking advantage of that because I'm going to give. I'm not going to give all the details to the clip. I'm assuming that most of us in the room maybe have seen those clips that I that I sent out, but I'll describe them. But here's the thing about the Book of Romans. The Book of Romans, as I've been saying each week, is filled with tremendous theology. Like it is our one book of the Bible that contains systematic theology. It's our doctrine. And where does all this great doctrine lead to? Where does all this about my relationship with God, where does all this flow to? It flows to the beginning of Romans 12 says, therefore. So in other words, all this tremendous theology that we have learned, this is what it ends up with. This is where it flows to. This spiritual transformation leads to a social transformation in people's relationship. This is what's being said. Spiritual transformation leads to a social transformation. Jesus hints at that in Matthew 25. And he says to a group of people, you know what? When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick, you came and visited me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. They're like, what? When were you ever in prison? When were you ever sick and thirsty? We didn't. He said, when you did it for other people. Right? When you helped other people out. So Jesus is making this really strong connection for us that when our life is right with him, there's no way that it can't be moving towards getting right with other people. In other words, we were born to bond. We were born to bond with people. And our life is going to be so much better and so much more awesome and full. And as he says, he says in John chapter 10, an abundant life, if that bonding is happening, this is how we get the more out of life that all of us innately know that there is. Romans describes that from a practical, from a practical perspective to us. So I said a couple weeks ago, I said, do you have a friend that you could call in the middle of the night and ask for money and they would be thrilled to give it? Today, we're going to talk about how you can have a friend like that. Where does that start? How does that happen? Do you have kids? If anybody in the room has kids, we all want the best for our kids. What's the best thing that you could do for your kids? We're going to talk about this at this morning because it's, we connect and our connections is what is going to lead us to having friends like that. But how does that happen? Our children need great relationships. They need awesome friends to have an awesome life. 
This is what all the data shows. But how do those connections begin? So today we're going to talk about how us connects. We are created, created for relationships. Like a ship was created to be in the ocean and a plane was created to be in the sky. We are created for relationships. We are born to bond. We were born to bond. And we're talking about how does that happen? Life is so much better. We have an innate sense that life can be more, most of us do, have this innate sense that life can be more than what it is. And here is how it happens. This is what the book of Romans is sharing with us to get more out of life. It says it in verse number two, this good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. It's out there. And today we really want to talk about the how. So if you like to fill in the fill in the blanks, this is an important one. Discontentment. And there's a lot of discontentment with life. I mean, we can get, we can get all kinds of promotions and we can make money and we can win the lottery, but there's discontentment with life. Discontentment flows from disconnection. Discontentment flows from disconnection. People who are connected are far more content with life. But how does that happen? I'd like to read you a quote from a book by Dr. Larry Crabb called Connecting. This is what it says. When two people connect, something is poured out of one and into the other that has power to heal the soul of its deepest wounds and restore it to health. The one who receives experiences the joy of being healed. The one who gives knows the even greater joy of being used to heal. Something good is in the heart of each of God's children that is more powerful than everything bad. It's there and it's waiting to be released. What is the problem? Why is there so much discontentment? Why are we falling short of this innate sense of where we know that we could be? The problem is either a poor connection or no connection at all. Connection is how it happens. Somebody sent me, because of the series we're in, somebody sent me a video clip of Tom Brady's wife who was on Jimmy Fallon. Maybe some of you have seen that. She has recently, Tom Brady's wife has recently written a book. I guess they felt they didn't have enough money, so they would write a book <laughs> and add it to the uh, trophies and the bank account. So they wrote a book. And what she, what she says in there is that the quality of our life depends on the quality of our relationships. Well, she knows that because there's so much data about that. And this is what we've been talking about. And this is what the Bible has said so many years ago. This is the wisdom. So we need deep, meaningful, high-quality relationships. And today, I want to get nitty-gritty. I want to talk about how that happens. Okay, we've been making the case. The Brady Bunch up in New England are making the case for us, right? This is... But how does that happen? This is what we want to go after. We're born to bond, but how are bonds born? We are born to bond, but how are bonds born? We want to talk about the golden rule of relationships. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse number 15. This is a golden nugget of wisdom that we should really pay attention to. Here is how relationships start and are sustained and how they thrive. Whatever you do, don't miss this one thing, because this is everything. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Okay. Lemons. Life is filled with lemons. Life is filled with mourning. 
And when those around us are mourning, we need to go there with them and mourn with them. But it doesn't mean that we have to stay there all the time. There are lemons. We can come over here and make some lemonade, right? Which is what the video clip I'm getting ready to talk about is all about. It's empathy. It's having empathy. And a lot of times when you mourn with somebody in the midst of their mourning, eventually that relationship, because of the mourning, turns to some sweet, sweet lemonade. Connections are made over lemons, Romans 12, 15, and connection is made over lemonade. They're made over the sour things, and they're made over the sweet things of life. Please pay careful attention to that. When you have somebody around you, particularly somebody you care for, maybe somebody that God's leading you to be in a relationship with, and you don't have much of a strong relationship with them at the current moment, when you see them at a moment of mourning, make sure that you appropriately respond to that time of mourning. When you see them in a time of sweetness and lemonade, make sure this is what Romans 12, 15, this is the wisdom they're being told. So babies, if you have a baby, your parent and your child, you have a child and that baby is crying, you'll often see a mother or a father when the child's crying, you know, the child's making this, you know, sad face and the parent will look back and go, oh, have you seen that before? Maybe you've done it. Oh, the baby's crying. Why would you do that? I mean, when you're trying to make it worse, I mean, the baby's already crying. What are you trying to do to make it worse? What happens is you are empathizing with that baby's brain, with that baby's pain. And when you do, something happens in your brain. You begin to connect emotionally and mentally in your very brain. You begin to strengthen a bond with that child at that moment. And when the child laughs and cries, you're like, and you laugh back and you make those smiley faces, this is what you're doing because you have a sense. You're rejoicing and you're mourning, and it's what bonds us. And it's those bonds that make life great. Make life great when you bond. When someone is happy and you're happy with them, true bonding occurs. When they finish the project and you're like, yeah, you finished the project. When they get the job and you're genuinely happy, yeah, you got the job. When their team won the game, right? When they did something, they got the promotion, whatever it was, and you rejoice with somebody, you are bonding with somebody. But when you treat it, hey, man, I got a new job. Good for you. When you do that, when you do that, you are diminishing the bond. Be very careful about that. Be very careful about that. Likewise, when somebody is mourning over something, they missed the project, they didn't get the job, they didn't get the promotion, their team lost the game. And you have lots of opportunities with Redskins fans. The team lost the game. And you mourn with them. I'm not saying you have to destroy your life, but you empathize with them in their mourning. You begin to bond with them. And it's the bonding that makes life great. Okay? The Stoics of antiquity, about the time the Bible was being written, encouraged people to be emotionally detached. And what is so interesting about that, that being emotionally detached, is the Bible encourages something different. We see that in Christ, and we see that in the Bible with all the emotion that is in the Bible. There are a lot of tears in the Bible, everybody. Tons of tears. I could have given you all kinds of verses about tears that are in the Bible. I just, I'll, I'll, I'll just read you one here. It's Psalm 56. It's speaking to God. You have kept track of all my sorrows. No, God, God himself is willing to mourn with us. Why? Because he wants to bond with us. You've kept track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. There's a lot of tears in the Bible. Why? Because God wants to bond with us. The shortest verse in the entire Bible, this is really important. 
You still love this in Sunday school, right? But it has a much deeper meaning than me just actually getting a piece of candy because I knew a memory verse, right? Jesus wept. Jesus had a very strong bond with a family. And in that family, their names were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And when Lazarus dies, Jesus comes fully knowing that he's going to resurrect Lazarus from the dead, but he's crying. He's weeping. Why is he doing that? Because he is empathizing with their pain. He's hurting. God is saying, I want to bond with you. Jesus is saying in that instance, I see your pain. You have tears. I want to bond with you. This is what he is doing. Research shows us that people who rarely cry are actually less bonded to other people in the world. So this emotional detachment thing does not help us to bond and thereby thereby leads us to a less than best life. We want to get more out of life. Here's the way. Bond with people. So research shows us that people who cry very, very, very seldom tend to be less bonded to other people. It's like the parent when the baby's crying. And you're like, suck it up, two-month-old. It doesn't work. There's no bonding that's going on. We need, we need to bond. And people who cry less are less bonded, and they actually tend to be very withdrawn. Now, let's talk about this as us. I sent you two fantastic. Some, these are two of my favorite scenes in this entire award-winning show. Right? This is us. So the first one is this. Let's talk about the first one. The doctor who plays a constant role in all of this. So they're, they're giving birth. They have triplets. They lose one of, the, one of the children, and the doctor comes out to talk to the father. His name is Jack. Jack Pearson comes out to talk to him. And he's like, you've got two beautiful babies. He begins to describe them, blah, blah, blah. He said, but we did lose the third one. And the husband, he's just kind of reeling. He's like, and he's breathing heavy. He's like, I can't really process what you're saying. What are you saying? He's like, he's, what about my wife? Your wife, the doctor, your wife's fine. She's great. She's resting. You have two beautiful children. But we did, he says the second time, we did lose the third one. And he's like, oh. And the doctor says, okay, we, uh, why, you know, sit, sit down. And then here's what the doctor does. The doctor sits down beside him. And the doctor commiserates. The doctor shares his own story of losing a child when he's first married. Tells him why he's still working as a doctor delivering babies now because his wife has died and he just is kind of passing the time. And then he shares some wisdom. But what he does is he sits with him in his pain. He sits with him in the sourness of time. You know what's interesting about this? Is this doctor in the show is there with him 17 years later. When Jack dies, he's with him 17 years later giving support and strength to the family. More than that, we learn later that Jack, the husband, because of all this, would stop by and see the doctor all the time. And when he was exhausted because they had triplets, because they ended up adopting the third baby, the doctor would say, hey, look, why don't you go in my office and lay down? I'll take care of the kids. They developed this bond which brings tremendous strength to their life. Why? Because the doctor was willing to mourn when he mourned. Are you willing to mourn when other people are mourning? Because if you ignore the mourning... You're going to diminish the bond. And when you diminish the bond, you're going to diminish your life. And this is what the doctor does. Now, in his famous line, right, he says, when life gives us lemons, we can always make something that resembles lemonade. And what happens is, is the doctor bonds. 
And eventually what takes place out of all of this mourning is their relationship turns to lemonade. Has that happened for you in any of your relationships? Have you been able to go there with people who are mourning? And eventually the lemons turned into lemonade. This is what happens. And if we don't, we diminish the bond and we diminish the great things that God wants to do in our lives. Second scene I sent you. Also, one of my very most favorite scenes. Because here is a scene where Kevin, the superstar stud athlete who becomes the superstar celebrity, really steps in to greatness, so to speak, to depth of character. So he's uh, this stud athlete, quarterback, injures his, injures his knee, right, and can no longer be a quarterback. And so he kind of flounders in life. And then he becomes a celebrity actor. And he's on this funny, goofy, kind of meaningless show and freaks out one day on the, on the uh, set and says, I can't believe I'm doing this. You guys should be ashamed that you're paying me millions of dollars to do this stupid stuff. And so he leaves and he goes to New York City and he wants to do a play. So he's self-funding this own play. And it's deep. It's a deep play. You know what I'm saying? And it's his big moment to be a serious. And he says that. He says, do you, do you, do you think I'm a serious person? Does anybody take me seriously? He wants to be taken seriously. It's his big moment. He's self-funded. It's the debut night. The family's in the audience. But he realizes his brother, Randall, who he's never had a great relationship with, his brother, Randall, who has always suffered panic attacks, and he would never do anything about it. He would see Randall as a teenager crying, like totally melting down at his computer, and he just walked by, just kind of turned his nose up, and just like, never. Terrible, terrible relationship. Randall calls him five minutes before the show goes on. And he could tell that Randall's really, really confused. Well, he had met, Kevin had met earlier that day with his stepfather-in-law, who he also can't stand because he married his mother. And he was sharing with him basically that he's very nervous about this debut tonight. And the stepfather says, you know what? When I'm nervous, what I do? I always say, what would Jack do? Jack was the father. So here is Kevin. He's standing in the wings, getting ready to walk on with the other person who's in the play with them. And he's like, I'm nervous. I'm picturing everybody in their underwear, right? And he said to him, what are you picturing? And Kevin says, I'm just thinking about what my dad would do right now. So the lights go out. She walks on stage. Lights come up. She's all by herself. And the next scene you see is Kevin is running down the sidewalk of New York City, headed to Wall Street to where his brother Randall is having completely an emotional breakdown. He's on the floor in the fetal position crying. And Kevin leaves that debut night to go and mourn with his brother, who is one of the most touching scenes in the entire series. And he just holds him on the floor crying while while a theater is filled with people somewhere off Broadway. And he's down on Wall Street holding his brother, which he's never done before. When we mourn with people who are mourning and we rejoice with people rejoicing, our bond is strengthened mightily and we get more out of life. I was watching a, um, an interview with a real life Randall, real life Randall, and he was talking about this scene and he said, somebody came up to him one day and stopped him. And he said, I got to tell you this, after that scene, I had realized I had not spoken to my brother in quite some time. And I just called my brother to say, I love you. Are you willing to go there with people? Because this is, where, this is where God is leading us to. Spiritual transformation always leads to social transformation. There is a book written by Daniel Goleman named Emotional Intelligence. Came out a number of years back. He talks about, you know, we can have IQ and we can have EQ. And he says, you know what, we put a lot of stock in IQ. He says, but I'm advocating for a lot of stock to be put in, in EQ. Emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence. 
He says there's five steps to it. I'm not going to give you all five steps. I just thought it was really fascinating that he said one of the five things is self-awareness, which is exactly what Romans 12.3 talks about, what we talked about a few weeks ago. You have to be self-aware of your sober self-judgment. This is what he said, all right? One of the major steps in emotional intelligence. The other one was empathy, which is what we're talking about today. If you want to have a lot of EQ, then you have to do what Romans 12.15 says, and that's how you build your bond, and that's how you have a great life, because all of us know that life can be much more than what it is right now. And this is how it happens through these steps. In his book, Emotional Intelligence, uh, Daniel Goleman tells this story. It happened in the early 1950s back in Japan. And Japan was recovering from the war, recovering from being bombed so badly, and a lot of difficulty uh, going on in that country as they tried to recover, and a lot of people hurting from all the shock that they experienced. And he says a friend of his was there in Japan because he was studying the Japanese art of self-defense, and he wanted to go there to do it. And one day he's riding the subway home. He's there on the subway, and a very large, very drunk Japanese man got on the subway and just kind of began to cause massive problems inside the subway for everybody who was there with him and was loud and was belligerent and eventually even kind of took a swing at a woman who was holding her baby. And this guy who's friend of Goldman said, you know, that was it. You know, I've, I've been training for, I've been training in self-defense. I guess it's time I finally use it. And he hops up out of his chair and he yells at the guy and the guy is at the other end of the train. He sees him and says, oh, and so he's barreling down toward him, this large, gentleman is barreling down toward him. The drunk man is barreling. So they're going to get it. He said, just then an elderly Japanese gentleman jumped out of his seat in a very cheery way, yelled at the drunk guy, said, Hey, Hey, I'm over here. And, and, and the, the very large drunk man kind of turned startled and was still belligerent with him. But the, but the older man was like, Oh no, no, come, come over a big smile on his face. Come, come over here. Everybody's like, what's going to happen next? And it's very tense. You can only imagine. It's very tense. And so eventually the drunk guy, for some reason, because the, guy, because the older man was so cheery, he's like, you're a long-lost friend. And the guy's like, do I know you? All right, so he goes over, and the older man begins to tell him about sitting in his garden and drinking sake with his wife and just sharing his life. And he says to the drunk man, he says, you, you must have a wife. You're a wonderful man. You must have a wife. He says, my wife died. And then he shares with them, not only my wife died, but I, I lost my job as a result of my pain and all everything he was going through, and I feel tremendous shame. And Goldman says when his friend walked out of the subway, out of the subway train, just a few train, you know, later, he turned around to look back, and the drunk man had his head in the lap of the elderly Japanese man and was just sharing all of his life with him, sprawled all over the seat of the subway car. And Goldman says that's emotional brilliance. There is a way that we can listen to people with our IQ and we register the facts. There's a way that we can listen to people with EQ and listen for feelings. And when we listen for feelings to what's really going on underneath, a bond can be born when we're willing to mourn when they mourn. And we're willing to rejoice when they rejoice. Now, let's take just a few moments and talk about joy since we talked about mourning. Let's, let's get happy, all right? Let's get happy. Because Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Sharing joy makes our bonds stronger. Sharing them. Joy, lemonade makes the bonds. Sometimes when somebody has something really great happen to them, 
we're not really happy for them. You know, you know what I'm saying? Has that ever happened to you? So we need to have genuine joy with somebody when they're experiencing joy. And when that happens, the joy by itself is strong, is strong to us, right? The joy of the Lord is our strength. But the bond between the two of you, because you're celebrating joy together, just gets stronger. Psychology Today, in an article they did, said people who have joy have deeper friendships. They stay married longer. They're more generous. They're more compassionate. They're more resilient. They have a greater zest for life. You think about Jesus. Jesus was very disconnected from a group of people called the Pharisees. Why was he so disconnected with them? Because they would never celebrate what he celebrated. I talk about this all the time in the Next Step Lunch. If you've never been to a Next Step Lunch, you should sign up for one. We have one next week. And I'll explain this much more uh, fully, right? But these Pharisees would not celebrate what he celebrated. And because of that, they didn't have a good bond. They had a disconnection constantly. And he talks about it in Luke 15. He tells three stories about what he celebrates. He says, when somebody, when somebody loses a coin and they search the house and they find it, oh, man, there's so much joy when they find it. When somebody has this sheep, right, and the sheep wanders off, the dumb lamb wanders off, and you go and you find it, and there's so much joy, and then you finally get to the final crescendo. You get the prodigal son who, through his own foolishness, through his own wickedness, wanders away, but the father stands there waiting and waiting and waiting, and then here he comes back, and the father rejoices. I said, we're not going to rejoice with you over that. He says, when somebody's outside the community of Christ and they come back in, there's genuine rejoicing. Well, what's the problem with that? Is that the Pharisees who were on the inside of the club, so to speak, who were living their life right, disdained people who foolishly wandered off and lived foolish lives. And Jesus is saying, no, when they come back, you shouldn't like beat them. Like, you know, let's stand up at the door. Let me get a paddle out and spank you. What instead you should do, which is what they were doing, you should have genuine joy. We say this around here, that we're a church for people who don't go to church. You know who's confused by that statement? It's not non-church people. It's church people. And I have actually had church people say, you know what? I'm not going to come to your church because it's not about me. I want to go to a church that's all about me. I want to go to church that's focused on me. I, I, I'm not going to go to church that's focused on people who don't go to church. Well, there's a big misunderstanding. We're a church for people who go to church and people who don't go to church. But we're a church that tries to celebrate what Jesus Christ celebrates. And he celebrates people who are outside the community and who come back. And I tell you what, people can tell the difference. You know what I'm saying? Thank you. People can tell the difference if you're genuinely. And so here's the thing. You want, to, you want to build a strong connection with Jesus Christ? Do you want to build a strong connection with God? Do you want your relationship with God to be better? Then you better jump on the bandwagon of rejoicing about what he rejoices. And any time in the scripture where you see something said three times in a row, God Almighty is saying, you better pay attention to this. So we better get our party hats out and the little things, whatever, and get really excited. Because if that calls you, I have actually had people say to me, you know what? I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go to grace anymore. I want to go to a church that's about church people. That's about people who are just deep, you know, one deep. I'm going to be around deep people. And what they mean by that is want to be around a church that you can really notice this massive disconnect between people who are followers of Christ, who are church people, and people who aren't. That is not the way to deepness. That is the way to shallowness because Jesus is celebrating this. You want to bond with God, then celebrate what God celebrates. 
This is what he's saying to us. This is so critical to our relationship with God, how we connect with other people. Are we celebrating what God celebrates? Now, I want to read this. I've never understood this before. I've only begun to understand it recently. It's this thing. This, Jesus makes this statement in Matthew chapter 11. This is what he says. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he's got a demon. The son of man, which the son of man is Jesus' own title for himself, okay? The son of man came eating and drinking. They say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. What is that being said here? Said John the Baptist, tough guy, tough guy, right? He's like Rambo in the Bible. He's a tough guy. He came saying, repent, repent, repent. Let's mourn over everything, right? And then Jesus comes along. He's like, let's celebrate, let's celebrate. And they, the Pharisees mainly here, would not go either place. They would not mourn over what God is mourning over, injustice, all the problems of the world, things like that, okay, this stuff. They wouldn't do that. And then they wouldn't celebrate those who were outside the community of Christ. And because of that, they could not have a bond. Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who mourn. Lemons and lemonade. Now, in conclusion, I want to break this down and get really practical about how this happens. Because we can't always, like, go there big time. Some of us are afraid of emotions. And I'm not telling you you have to become an emotional basket and start crying all the time. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Because actually Goldman says in his book, Emotional Intelligence, one of the five traits of somebody who has EQ is somebody who can manage their emotions. You know anybody who can't manage their emotions? Don't raise your hand if you're sitting next to them, right? But you know somebody who can't manage their emotions. This is the problem. EQ is going to be very weak. But I want to get really practical about how us connects in conclusion, all right? Make a bid, take a bid. Make a bid, make a bid, take a bid. Bids. Gottman, John Gottman, I recommend any of John Gottman's books. He's brilliant, okay? Gottman, he says bids are this. Bids can be a question. They can be a look. They can be a touch. They can be an expression. They can be an invitation or a response to an invitation. Would you like to go for coffee? Jesus made bids all over the place. His most famous bid was two words, follow me follow me. Jesus made bids constantly to people, and that's how he bonded with people. Jesus said, let's go for a walk. Let's have a talk. Let's go fishing. Let's go on a boat ride. Hey, could we pray together? Let's have a meal together. Let's go mountain climbing. These are all the things Jesus did. Let's have a vacation together. Let's go do this. Let's go to a party together. Jesus had awesome and meaningful relationships because he was constantly making bids and taking bids back and forth. Woman at the well. It's the longest conversation we have of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. The woman at the well. He should not have been talking to her for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different reasons. He crosses all those barriers, shocks her, and he says, hey, could you give me a drink? It's an invitation to a bid. Zacchaeus. Nobody likes Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a thief. He works for the devil, which is the Roman government. Everybody hates him there in Israel, right? Everybody hates him. And Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, up in the tree. How about lunch today? How are you at making bids? And how are you at taking bids? This is really important. Now listen to this. Listen to this fact. They found that husbands who were headed towards a divorce in their marriage disregarded 82% of their wife's bids. Think about that. If you sit next to a husband with the elbow right now, right? 82%. Headed towards divorce court, disregarded 82%. When a husband is in a stable, thriving, awesome marriage, they disregard their wife's bids just 19% of the time. Are you getting the connection? You want to have a great life? Of course you do. Make a bid, take a bid. Be 
focused on this. Wives, on the other hand, in a relationship headed toward divorce, disregarded 50% of their husband's bids and a stable relationship, 14%. I wish I would have known this years ago, right? Because Christian would say, hey, you want to go shopping? And I'd say, no. (laughs) Absolutely. I hate shopping. That wasn't to go shopping. That was an invitation to bond. And I missed it. Hey, John, you want to look at houses? No, we have a house. I'm not going to buy a new one. There was an invitation because she likes it. <laughs> I, I would ignore these things. She said, hey, you want to dance? No I'm, no, no, I'm no good at dancing. And then her favorite one, you want to walk the dog? Right? No, I don't want to do this. The, these, are all, these are all wonderful invitations to bond. And I would ignore them. What, 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 what's happening? I'm weakening our bonds. Make a bid, take a bid. You can, you can ask a friend or a coworker, hey, coffee, lunch. You could text somebody, you know they're going through a tough, you heard about it, hey, I just want you to know I'm thinking about you. Or if you're comfortable, you could always say, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you. Not all of us are comfortable doing that, but I'm praying for you. Somebody has something great happen to them, send them a note of encouragement, a card, an email, something. These are all bids. Or when somebody asks you, hey, you want coffee? No, I'm good. You could do something, figure out a way to respond, either make or take a bit. It's very important. I read this story about a woman. She had two twin boys. They were like three or four or five years old or whatever. And she decided one day she was going to put the phone down, right? No phone. And she was just going to watch them for one hour play. How exciting is that? One hour just to play. No phones, no distraction, whatever. And then she was going to make a note. Every time that they looked over, the twin boys looked over to her for approval or disapproval, whatever it was, she's just going to make a note. You know how many times in one hour? 28 times. People are looking to connect. They're looking to bond. And when you like shut them out, you're diminishing yourself. You're diminishing the bond. You're hurting the relationship. You could do all kinds of stuff, right? You want to go to the football game? How about ride one of these scooters that are laying all over the streets of our city? I mean, you could, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that you can do. And you don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be brilliant. You just have to be there. Crystal would remind me this past week, you know, her father, who is no longer with us, who played such a big role in this church didn't like church, wouldn't go to church, wouldn't have anything to do with church, was angry and upset about church, was cut off from church. But he had a mother-in-law who prayed for him all the time and would keep the church kind of somehow connected to him. And so many, many years ago, he lay in what we called Arlington Hospital, Virginia Hospital Center now. His son, his three-year-old son was sick, and he was sick himself, and it was in a terrible snowstorm. Pastor Qualls, the church just right down the street, came and visited him in that terrible, terrible snow. Now, Pastor Qualls couldn't preach a lick. And he just did. He was legitimately, everybody knew it, he's a bad preacher. But one, one thing he would do with you, he would mourn with you, and he would celebrate with you. And he went to visit Big Russ. And over a couple decades period of time, what Pastor Qualls did, what played, that was one thing that played a major role in Big Russ finally coming to church, finally accepting Christ as Savior, and his life was turned around. In a lot of ways, it began because somebody just, you don't have to be brilliant, you just have to be there. You just have to be there. All right. I want to say one last thing before we, we end all of this, is that, you know, there are, as a disclaimer, there are some people's, some people in your life that you should not make bids to and you should not receive bids from. And I'm hoping that you get the difference. Okay, this message is not about that, but there's some of us in this room that you are making bids to a person all the time and you just need to cut that out. 
And you, maybe you should talk to some wise people around you, and they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, that person, stop that. Or receiving bids from, okay? That's all I want to say. That's all I want to say about that. Uh, let me conclude by telling you a quick story, a little story about why I'm sitting in this stool. How's that? And I've talked about this before, but I want to try to conclude the story. And it has something to do with what happened to me uh, this past week. This, this past year was a really tough year for, uh, for instance, I lost my brother-in-law. I lost my father-in-law and um, all kinds of stuff, you know, took place. And I had this medical issue that went on with me, which is why I've been sitting in the stool for the last year, uh, basically, here. Uh, so I've always, I've always had a slow heart rate. I've always, I've always had, brad- it's called bradycardia. I've always had a slow heart rate. I go to the doctor's, you know years ago and they would heart rate immediately and they're like whoa man are you a world-class athlete i'm like that's right i am i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad you recognize that <laughs> actually i'm not i'm not even a neighborhood class athlete if we did a if we had a race around the cul-de-sac i'm pretty sure i'd lose in my neighborhood but um Anyway, that was nice for them to say. But progressively, my bradycardia, my slow heart rate, like I was always in the 50s, and then it was the low 50s, and then it was the high 40s, and then, and then sometimes I'd go to the doctors and it'd be in the high 30s. And so um, I, I, I started having, because of that, this vestibular problem, which is your balance. And they couldn't quite figure it out because I was testing great on everything except for the heart rate. And I had a number of cardiologists say, no, 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 it has nothing to do with it. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do anything about it. Well, long story short, you know, oh my gosh, uh, the imbalance just was not going away. And then about four weeks ago, something began to happen to me. I started getting lightheaded, which they couldn't understand why I wasn't lightheaded before because of my heart rate. Because at night when I would sleep, because they tracked me for like a month with a heart monitor, my heart rate would be in the upper 20s sometimes at night. That was bad. It makes me dizzy just thinking about it. Uh, and about three weeks ago, I sat here, three or four weeks ago, I sat here in the 930 service, this service right here, and I thought I was going to, while I was speaking, I thought I was going to fall out of the stool. I was just gripped on for dear life. So it was progressively getting worse. Um, so what we, what we realized as these light, feeling lightheaded, just kept growing, 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 uh, that I needed to go ahead and get a pacemaker put in. And I knew a doctor, I'd seen five or six cardiologists, and I, I, I knew one. And he had said to me, he's the one that said, oh, whoa, you need to get, you need to get a pacemaker. So all of a sudden, things are like ramping up on me, and I needed to do something really quick, right? And so um, I called his office, and I said, I need to get an appointment. He's a very well-respected cardiologist, and I, uh, he doesn't have an appointment for a month. I'm like, hey, well, I have this crisis situation right now. And they're like, I'm sorry, that's it. But... Uh, this particular cardiologist, uh, his, one of his children went to the same school one of my children did, and we, we kind of knew each other. Not great, but we kind of knew each other, so I had his cell phone number. <laughs> so I, I texted him, realizing that he's so busy, I can't get an appointment for like a month. I just, I, just, I, just, I just threw it out there. Man, he called me right back. He cleared his schedule. Like I said, you can't see him for a month in the office. He says, I'll see you in the office in one hour. I'm like, jeez. Maybe he still thinks I'm a world-class athlete. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, this is getting long. I'm almost done. So I, I meet him. He takes all the time in the world for me. Just incredibly nice. Very helpful. Very, very helpful. And so we make the arrangement. I had a pacemaker put in about 10 days ago. His last words to me as he's walking out the door. And he says, I just want to thank, and he names one of my kids for how they helped my child when they were going through a rough time. I thought, aha, 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 there it is. He, he could care less about me. 
my child was willing to mourn with their child when they were mourning. And now I was rejoicing. Okay? So what we sow is what we reap. Okay? Oh, it, oh you don't have to... I, I, I'll, I'll say this. I went and I had an appointment. So I'm getting better. I had an appointment with the cardiologist and the neurologist at Hopkins the other day. And you know what the neurologist prescribed for me? He said, I need you to do a lot of swing dancing. <laughs> I said, are you talking to my wife? What is the, what is, what is the deal here? What is the deal here? Listen, um, a better life is right before us. We innately know that there's more to life and it is before us. And it's the strength of our bonds. And this is how you do it. Make a bid, take a bid. Mourn and rejoice. It's everything. Now, next week, this is what I want to talk about. Next week, I'm going to talk about this. And I hear men say this all the time. I hear men say, I want to be a man like that. And I hear women say, I would like to be in a relationship with a man like that. And I want to talk about what that is, what it is. Now, I'd love to meet you. You've never been to Grayson 5. My wife and I would love to meet you right over here. We have a special surprise for you when you walk out the door, so don't run too quickly, okay? We have Chick-fil-A lemonade. I love, I love the Chick-fil-A lemonade, right? This is the actual product right here. It's like Christian lemonade. <laughs> That's a good thing about going to Chick-fil-A. You don't have to pray before you eat. It's like pre-blessed. But it's very... It's, very good lemonade. When you stream out of here today, okay, please pick up a lemonade. We got it just for you. Think about the sweet things of life. Let me pray for you real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you for everybody in this room. Thank you, God, uh, that you give us opportunities, Lord, to mourn with people who mourn and rejoice with people who mourn, we, we rejoice, and that we build bonds as a result so that we could have everything out of life that you called us for. In Christ's name, amen.